0: Welcome to Rumble Strip. Before we start, I want to announce that the best restaurant in Burlington will be a sponsor for Rumble Strip for a whole year. It's the award-winning Honey Road, which serves incredible Eastern Mediterranean small plates on the corner of Church Street and Main. I met with owners Kara Tobin and Allison Gibson. I did a not-very-skilled presentation about the amazing business benefits of sponsoring the show, and they said to me, look, we like what you do. We like to support things that we like, and that gives you some sense of who they are and how they run an establishment. They're kind, they're great employers, they love their customers, and they make the best food in Burlington. So when you go there to eat, thank them for me. Now, on to the show. What was your Little League team? What were you on?
1: Red Sox. Yeah.
0: I was on the Tigers. I think we were better than you. Were we better Uh, than you? I am sharp. Do you remember sewer balls?
1: Oh, yeah, I do. (laughs) There was this big kind of
0: open sewage patch.
1: Yeah, it was down near where the old ice rink was. So the
0: balls would go, you know, you'd hit a foul, and it would go into the leach field, and you'd have to go get it out with... Paper,
1: scissors, who's going to (laughs) go? You'd have to pick it out with two fingers. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I hadn't even thought about that for years until you mentioned it. What a riot
0: that's jp sinclair we went to charlotte central school together from kindergarten through eighth grade he was a year ahead of me his dad was a cop and when you go to a school as small as ours was for as long as we did you remember each other or you remember the essential parts of each other what i remember about jp is just that he was decent he was just a decent kid He used to skip recess and help the lunch ladies clean up the cafeteria, stuff like that. After school and after college, J.P. joined the Vermont State Police like his father, and over a 31-year career, he was at the center of over 500 death investigations and 101 homicides. He served as the State Police's Chief Criminal Investigator, and he led the Vermont State Police's Bureau of Criminal Investigations. He was also instrumental in forming a major crime unit in the state of Vermont to handle the state's most egregious cases. And every now and then, I'd read about him in the news. This kid I went to school with, now one of the most important people in law enforcement in the state. J.P. retired in September, and probably because we went to school together, he let me interview him at his kitchen table in Danville. And after all he's seen, and all the time it's been since I've seen him, I recognized him, that same decency. In this conversation, we talk about his life in the Vermont State Police, and we don't get into the explicit details of homicides. But I do want to warn people that we talk about the Melissa Jenkins case. Jenkins was a mother and a teacher here in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, and she was raped and murdered by a married couple in 2012. So, fair warning. Here's J.P.
1: Sinclair. I did about five and a half years as a road trooper. And then I had an opportunity to lateral transfer into a detective trooper position in the Criminal Investigation Bureau. And once I got into that, I loved it. What? What?
0: So what was it about criminal investigation when you started doing that? What clicked?
1: I, You know, for me, it was just when I got into criminal investigations, they were just deeper, broader, more in-depth, and they were challenging. They were really challenging to me that... You know, I would get presented a case, an incident, something that's happened, and it was up to me to use experience, whatever, ingenuity, just figure it out, you know, come to a conclusion. And, you know, and the challenge of taking a criminal case that the person that did it, the bad guy or woman, they have every advantage to break every rule to try and get away from you. But you have this very strict set of parameters. You have to stay within the legal system to prove your case and then present it to a prosecutor, and then to the courts, ultimately a jury, a judge. It was just very rewarding to me that, especially with some of these victims of crime, that you know, they're coming to you in, in their darkest moment. They're hurt, they're pissed off, they're, they've just had their world rocked and turned upside down because of somebody else's actions, and they put all their faith and trust in you that you know, you've got the ability and the drive to bring them some sense of justice out of the whole system.
0: It's so funny to hear you say that because having worked for the defense only, you know, as a as a private investigator, I, my thought was always that you, that the prosecution and that the, the law enforcement had all the goodies, had all the resources, and that the defense was always scrappy and kind of coming up from behind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose it's always what side of the fence you're on. Which, you know, I, I'll fully admit when I first started in police work, um... I really had a hard time my first couple of years adjusting to the concept of, like, the plea bargaining system, and I certainly grew to appreciate why it's there and and its functions in the system, but I can remember working really hard on, we had a series of burglaries to businesses spanning from St. Johnsbury up to Lindenville. There's like five different places got hit. There was a crew of three guys that did it, and I worked so hard on that case. It took me six months but I got it, I put it all together, I had more than enough, and I made the arrests, and I put together this massive case volume to bring up to the prosecutor for, you know, multiple counts of burglary, uh, unlawful mischief, all the crimes that were associated with these investigations. And I can remember getting my slip back from the state attorney's office where, you know, they all took part in it, so they each got charged with, you know, five B&Es. What is B&E? Burglaries, breaking and entering. You know, so, like, I get a slip back on one guy that says... And I know he broke into five places. And I know he committed these other crimes associated with the burglary. But his slip says uh, he pled to two burglaries. You know, three others were amended down to a trespass. And then these other crimes were just dropped. You know, and I'm sitting there looking at it thinking, what in the world? You know, this person committed all these crimes. And I worked for six months to put all this together. And now... My case, all that hard work, you know, the, the people that had their lives disrupted and their businesses burglarized had to come in in the morning and clean up glass. And, did, and I'm thinking, how are they not held responsible for this? It really got under my skin in the beginning. But over time, I grew to appreciate it, to understand there's another side to this. The people that broke into this place, you know, maybe they're not just crumb buckets. There was a substance abuse problem. There was poverty there was you know some reasons behind a desperation to do this i have seen enough times in my career that i think there's just true blue evil out there but i think that's a very small small segment and so i I guess over time i've grown to appreciate and just put trust in the prosecutors that in the defense that you know they're going to sit down and go okay here's a reasonable resolution to this case might just go into trial (laughs)
0: What was what did class have to do with school? What do you remember about different kids and whether or not class played a role in our lives in school?
1: Well, you know, I think back now, and I guess one of the fondest memories I have of us growing up in Charlotte and going to CCS was that, you know, I can remember, um, you know, going to school with, like, Alfred. Uh, he was a friend of mine. You know, and now as an adult, you realize, you know, he came to school in the dead of winter with worn out sneakers with holes in them. And back then you don't you don't think twice about it cuz you know who cares? Let's go out on the playground and have fun. Now you realize, you know, socioeconomic barriers and things that he was dealing with in his family or you know other kids that we went to school with. I don't ever remember it being, you know, something that any kid was ashamed of or that any other kid put somebody down for. You know what I mean? I mean, we went to school with people that lived in probably million-dollar homes but didn't come to school and act like it. I just don't remember people being mean to one another. I mean, certainly disagreements or arguments or even I'll meet you back in a swing, you know, (laughs) out of the playground, you know, and, you know, the the playground monitor's not looking and you settled some things, but, uh, you know, everybody got along good. When you're doing initial interviews with the accused,
0: can you talk about your strategy and how you... um, how you interface with people? What was your style?
1: Yeah, and one of the valuable things I learned early on, you know, even in the the smaller investigations, misdemeanor investigations, through to a homicide, it doesn't matter. You need to learn everything you can possibly learn about this person before you sit down with them. You need to know about their life history. You need to know about their criminal history. You need to know everything you can possibly learn from other ancillary witnesses. And really understand who it is that you're going to talk to. I never tried to make myself, I guess, you know, this imposing person or this, you know, you know, just always remember in the back of your head, you're just talking to another person. And they bring with them life experiences, baggage, you know, and maybe, you know, as they grew up, some cop came through the door and beat up their old man, you know, or you never know. If I learned something about them, I learned... They, they had this horrible, abusive history as, as a kid. They had a father who used to kick the crap out of them. But now I'm investigating them for assaulting somebody else. Let them know you understand their life history. You understand, you even appreciate, but you're here to do a job. And this isn't going to go away. But let me hear from you your whole story and this whole thing. Because they're going to hold you accountable.
0: You just talked about taking into account the fact that everybody arrives to where they are for reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody arrives to where they arrive to by virtue of a a life lived. And you you have to understand that when you walk in the room. Mm -hmm. But in a way, you're there to get information. And so it's both honest and it's also manipulative. So how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, and, you know, whenever I sat down with people, I – I just tried to impart to them listen, no matter if you talk to me or not, no matter if you tell me the truth or lie to me or not, the investigation is still rolling forward. There's nothing you can do to go backwards in time to change what you did. That's set in time, and the evidence is set in time physical, testimonial, witness, whatever. You know, it's nothing wrong with me sitting down with an accused and telling them, look, this is how this is going to work. I'm going to continue the investigation. I am trying to be fair. It's my responsibility to talk to you. Prosecution, defense, everybody's going to want to know that I did a complete investigation, which includes coming to talk to you. You can tell me to pound sand. You can tell me to get the hell out of here. That's fine. I'll document that. I'll move on. It doesn't mean everything stops. So as this continues down the line, that's what's documented. But even some of the people that you know I've arrested over years and put in jail, and I still see in the community. I mean, I live here. I'm sure there's been times that you know people have looked at me cross-eyed in a restaurant or something like that, and you know, but I've never had an ugly confrontation or you know anything like that, and th- and there's, there's actually been guys that I've dealt with you know, that I've seen that you know <laughs> I literally rolled around in the dirt with, but you know that I can see at a gas station and walk up and shoot the breeze with now. It's like Dwayne Masure. He was a logger up here, and um, he could be a rough guy. When he was drinking, he could be pretty violent. And um, I was a young trooper, and uh, there used to be a place called the Pizza Keg over in Lindenville. You know, when we're working, I worked a lot of nights. A lot of times it was just me and one other person. We're covering all of Caledonia and half of Essex County. So, you know, for all practical purposes, there's not a lot of backup. You know, sometimes you're far apart. And a call came in one night at the Pizza Keg that Dwayne was there, he was drunk, and he was fighting with some guys in the bar. So I went there. My backup was, you know, 30 minutes away trying to get to me. So I pulled in, I walked in, and there was like three guys, you know, laid out on the floor, picking themselves up, and Dwayne sitting at the bar. And he had just like mopped the floor with these three guys. I mean, he was a, he was a rugged guy. And so I walked up to the bar, and I had seen Dwayne around, and you know, when he was, when he wasn't drinking, you know, he was actually kind of a quiet guy. I would see him at a gas station or whatever, and talk with him. And so I walked up to the bar and I sat down next to him. And I said, "Dwayne, kind of a rough night, huh?" And he had his beer, and you know, he turned around. And he said, "Well, for them it was." And I said, "Well, Dwayne, it's, you know, they don't the staff doesn't want you here, and there's there's we got two plans here tonight." And he turned and looked at me, and of course I'm only five seven. I'm not a big guy, and you know, Dwayne's Dwayne was a big boy, and uh, he said, well, "What's that?" I said, "Well." plan a is you know you and i can walk out together and jump in the cruiser i'll take you home you know these i've already talked to these guys they don't want to press charges they're not going to tell me what's happening and so i can just you know i'll drive you home get a ride down tomorrow pick up your truck go to work in the woods and you know that's it and he said well what's plan b and i said well plan b is you and i start rolling around on the ground and then there's going to be you know another guy and a couple more guys dressed just like me they're going to show up eventually and you're going to jail, so, and then we're going to tow your truck, and then tomorrow you're going to have to pay fines, get out of jail, get a ride, get your tow truck out of impound, and it's going to be a big pain in the butt. And so he looked at me, he's finished off his beer, put it down, and says, "Let's go to Plan A." And he walked out of the bar with me and got in the cruiser, and I, I took him home.
0: Do you remember what you talked about on the on the ride to his house?
1: Uh, you know, I, I, I had an interest in logging too, and we, I think, on the ride home, we talked about working in the woods and what the current wood prices were and pulp prices and firewood prices and, you know, what kind of chainsaws he liked. And, you know, we, we got back to his place and it was fine. You know, he sobered up the next morning, went and got his truck. Everything was fine. Um, He died a few years ago, but it was only about a month or so before he died. He actually pulled up in front of my house one day and I have a little sawmill and he was interested in having some red cedar logs that I had sawed up. He's going to make like a picnic bench or something like that. And uh, and I actually sawed all the boards up for him. He, he died in the meantime, but uh, I ended up giving it to one of his sons. I know a couple of his sons.
0: The kind of work that you did in a homicide, it's... Deeply creative, it seems to me, because you're, it's like you're given a puzzle without any details and you're, you're making the puzzle that doesn't exist in a way. Is there a story you can tell about a homicide where— um,
1: Well, I guess one that's close to home, you know, people know around here would be the Melissa Jenkins case. In that particular case, we had multiple crime scenes.
0: Can you just say what that case was?
1: Uh, Melissa was the uh, schoolteacher from St. Jay Academy— that was murdered by uh, Alan and Patricia Prue. Closed case now. But yeah, that was, a, that was an investigation that, at least from my viewpoint on the crime scene forensics, was it was very complex, but it was fascinating in that different components of each crime scene tied into another.
0: What are, were the different crime scenes in that case?
1: Well, I mean, she was abducted down on Goss Hollow Road, on the side of the road. So that was one. Her home was another. Uh-huh. Alan and Patricia Prue's home was another. Uh, their vehicle was another that she was transported in. The uh, site where we found Melissa's body down in Comerford Dam was another. The site over in New Hampshire where he threw a cell phone into the Connecticut River was another, where they burned their clothes and footwear and things like that was another. You know, the remnants of a, of a boot that we found over in New Hampshire. You know, the tread patterns were able to be looked at and, and found to be similar to tread patterns that we took out of mud over at his house and then down at the Goss Hollow scene. It was a very complex investigation that I, I give a lot of uh, props to the Caledonia State's Attorney for. I'm sure it was very difficult to come up with an outline and a theme to present to a jury because it was so complex with so many different facets that had to be all tied together to show the picture of why... We knew that these were the people that did it.
0: And what is the, the that's a, a murder of a, a beloved teacher, local teacher. What is the, you know, this isn't New York City. This is a person who you might know, yeah. right? So what is the charge or what is the, the emotional charge of doing that work in, in, in your own community?
1: I mean, you could certainly feel the weight of it. You know, anywhere you went in this area, everybody knew it. Everybody knew something about it, especially when she was uh, first missing and hadn't been found. You know, you could feel the weight of it in the community everywhere you went, especially up, you know, in St. Johnsbury, around the academy. I mean, you know, people are on edge. You know, there's there's no explanation for why this lovely young woman, mother, teacher is missing. And certainly people get understandably apprehensive. There's no reason for this. And, you know, you pray that there's an explanation that comes out good, but certainly amongst you know the investigators you know history has taught us this is not right this is probably not going to end well i mean obviously uh, at the point we found her body that you know How did you this find body? you know I, at one particular point you know we had scoured out you know as as much as we initially knew as far as analyzing where her car was her house you know doing all these interviews and there was a stretch of time where you know we decided Let's ask some of the local, you know, investigators, just branch out, go look at anywhere you can think of. Maybe some abandoned farmland or uh, fishing accesses or back roads, pull-offs where trash is dumped or whatever. Just if you're trying to dispose of something, where you might go. And a couple of our investigators went down on Comerford Dam Road, went to that fishing access and uh, drove in, got out of the cars, looked around. And on the opposite side of the the bay, where that fishing access is, they were able to see her body.
0: I mean, that's part of your job, too. And I don't want to get garish, but, you know, having to do work that involves dead bodies, you know, we see it on television. But it's got to be more complex emotionally than what we see on CSI.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not for everybody. I mean, I've certainly seen, we've had detectives in our division that had a very short career you know, in our division because it was just not for them. But I always tried to process it in my mind that I think I ended up with, you know, 500 death cases and like 101 homicides, but I always tried to look at, you know, when I'm dealing with this person that when they died there was nothing I could have done for them at the time. You know, now my job is to pay them respect even in their death to carefully analyze and come to a conclusion why they died. And that also pays homage to the people that are affected by this person's death. I had to separate in my mind the person that this was and the value that they are now as a piece of evidence. It's like a train on the tracks. When you're doing the right things in investigation, you're following the train. It starts moving, it's fueled by evidence, testimony, you know, all these things. It starts moving down the tracks. Don't ever assume that you know where that station is in the end because the tracks could veer to the right, to the left. That might not be the final destination. Follow it. Don't try and get out in front of it, follow it. It will get to where it needs to be eventually, but have the patience and the understanding to wait for it to get there and when the train comes into the station and you realize we've gotten to the end, we know what happened, we have the evidence to prove it, you know, now it's time to make the arrest and hold them accountable. And whether it took a couple of days or sometimes it takes us years to finally get to that point, just the the gratitude that, you know, you get back from a family or loved ones that have experienced something so terrible like a homicide It's hard to describe. It makes all those late nights and the lack of sleep and eating crappy food and drinking way too much coffee uh, worth it.
0: What do you know about Vermont that most Vermonters don't know?
1: You know, times that I've had to go in big investigations that had a lot of intensity to them, uh, whether I was a field detective or, you know, running them, but... Just Vermonters in general are such wonderful people. I I know law enforcement in certain metro areas have a lot of difficulty with relationships with the community and trust and bonding with the community, and it costs them greatly in times like that when they need information. And even, you know, folks that have maybe skirted the, you know, ragged edge of the law sometimes. You know, uh, when we have a room full of detectives, you know, we leverage past relationships with defendants and people that we've dealt with and that again goes back to how you treat people that if if I'm sitting in a room and I know you know such and such guy that you know I've dealt with before and he probably knows some of these players I might be able to make a call to him and say what are you hearing and he trusts me enough that you know I didn't throw down with him I didn't treat him badly when I had to deal with him in his bad moment i have never ceased to be amazed at the calls that would come into us you know, from folks that really have no reason to call, but they're willing to call and say, okay, you got me for a DUI, but now you're looking for a missing child? Yeah, what can I do? You know, I was in the bar, I heard this, or I've, you know. And that one little thread of information may point you in the right direction that takes you where you need to go.
0: When You said earlier that there, you, you, you have seen
1: evil. What does that mean? You know, you were just talking about the proofs. And certainly, they were disadvantaged in some aspects. But I mean, you and I grew up with people just as disadvantaged. And they didn't do stuff like this. And no matter what other factors you have swirling around in your life, you cannot deny the fact that you made a very conscious decision, especially in something like that, that there were so many opportunities to turn away from this. So many. And no matter what your upbringing is, no matter what your life experience is, you know 100% this is wrong. And you're choosing to do it anyways. You know, this isn't a moment in time, a flash decision where, you know, it's a bar fight gone bad, you pulled a gun and shot somebody. You know, this is something that people think about and they know what they're doing is wrong. Yes, there could be other factors in their life. Maybe they were a past victim of abuse themselves But you can't tell me for a moment that they don't know what they're doing is wrong. I just think that over time, you know, maybe there's been an erosion of personal responsibility put on people. Sometimes I get a little tired of hearing, you know, I'm a victim of this, I'm a victim of that. Well, there's also times that you've made conscious decisions to do what you've done. You know, people have to be held accountable you know, and there's, that's what the system's there for. I've certainly, when I was investigating sex crimes, you know, saw examples of accused that I dealt with that I arrested that, you know, when you peel the onion back far enough, you realize they were past victims of abuse themselves. But, you know, all the same, one of the things I remember vividly, like going to a armed robbery scene at a convenience store. And the guy that stuck up the store, you know, he had substance abuse problems. He was, you know, in poverty. And, you know, we caught him fairly quickly, and, you know, all this unraveled. And I remember going back and talking to this store owner, and it was just a little mom-and-pop, you know, operation, family operation. And I remember the guy telling me, he says, you know what? He says, I've read all that in the paper. I know all about this guy and his life history, but he says, I don't care what his life story is. I don't care what befell him in his life at this very moment i'm looking down the wrong end of a very large gun and i just don't care well i appreciate why he feels the way he feels
0: your dad was a cop
1: yeah so yeah with the all, state police yeah
0: and you always had a you always had a cruiser in your driveway
1: yeah yeah you know i always looked up to my father still do uh, he was very supportive but I, I still, I recall the day when I told him that, you know, I'd made a decision that when I came home, I was going to apply to the state police and, and try and get out of the department. And, you know, I remember the look on his face was like 50% pride and 50%, oh God, <laughs> he's going to be like me. But honestly, I I think I did just the right amount of time in that profession. and And I really was at peace with the idea of getting done. J.P.
0: Sinclair retired this past September, and now he runs a sawmill and works as a logger in the Northeast Kingdom. He says he hasn't missed a single one of his kids' sports games since he retired. He says he's content. Did you have a crush on anybody in school that I would know of? <laughs> you know, maybe like seventh grade?
1: Well, I know my friend Jack had a huge crush on your sister for yeah. a l- oh yeah, for many years. Really? Oh, sure he did.
0: Jack, what, Jack? Kendrick? Kendrick.
1: Yeah. Aww. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Missy was cute as a button. Of course she was. Of course he did. What about you? No, I'm not going to tell you any of my crushes. No, of course not. They might be listening. Absolutely not. I had a crush on every girl in my school. Are you kidding me? Of course I did. They were wonderful. That was retired Captain
0: J.P. Sinclair. His business is called Sinclair Millworks and Timber Harvesting. And you can find him and the business on Facebook at Sinclair Millworks. Thank you so much to Mark Davis for his excellent feedback on this show and to Brian Clark for the music in this show. If you have any comments, I'd love to hear them for me or for JP. Just go to the website, rumblestripvermont.com. And if you want to make a donation to the show, that would be super. You can find a green donate button on the top right corner of the website, which is again, rumblestripvermont.com. And again, thanks to the beautiful people at Honey Road Restaurant in Burlington, Vermont be back soon with another show. Thanks a lot for listening.